It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Ruth Buzzy episode of The Muppet Show. Welcome back to Muppeturgy. We're so glad you're here with us. I'm David Levy. We also have Adam Grossworth, Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson. And we also have an annoying amount of business this week, so please bear with me. The bear can barely bear it, folks. <laughs> Um, it's just been a while since we uh, actually recorded anything, so um, we've just got a bunch of these. Hopefully this is our last disclaimer about episode order, but we recorded a bunch of episodes in advance, and we made some guesses about which order Disney Plus would use, and then Disney Plus put up the show, and it was in the New York airing order, so we were right. And then a week later, they changed it for some reason, back to the production order, which, after watching a few in the air order, I think is a bummer. We'll get into that, I'm sure, as we go along about you know what things make sense when you're watching. None of this really matters because it's streaming and you can easily watch them in whatever order you want. And you probably aren't watching them one a week like we are anyway, but we're nerds and we need an organizing principle. So we're following their lead and we're still recording in advance. So we did one episode before they changed the order that you will hear in a few weeks, but now we're on track for real. And that I hope is the last time I will talk about our episode order. The question is who cares? And I just want to shout out that the Muppet wiki has a great page with the list of episodes that you can order by production order or New York order or UK order. And they recently added a randomizer button. If you just are like, Hey, I want to watch them up. I don't know what to watch. And that's a good way to break up the monotony. Not to say that there's monotony, but uh, well, you're, you're, you'll, you'll hear why I might be recommending that. <laughs> Speaking of which, I guess in the Juliet Prowse episode, I said that I thought it was weird to listen to us without watching along. And I want to apologize to any listeners who are doing that because some of you are, and we're very glad you're here and we respect your process and your journey. We obviously think the Muppet show is delightful and hope you are enjoying it or have enjoyed it in the past. And in fact, as you will hear tonight, you may want to um, use us as a guide for which episodes to maybe skip sometimes. So however you're doing it, we, we think you're doing great. Oh, group! <laughs> You're here, too. I didn't think you'd notice. Um, it has been a while now, as I said, but in conjunction with the Disney Plus release, um, Rita Moreno has done a bunch of delightful press. Um, I don't know why it's all her, but I'm not complaining. So we'll have all of this in the show notes for this episode. But Vulture put up a list of their 25 essential episodes, um, which is a pretty good list. Uh, and it includes a quote from Ms. Moreno about the opening dance number. So first, a correction. We called it a tango. It's actually an Apache. The music is tango. The dance is an Apache, which is a usually comedic dance fight, which it was. And she also says in that quote that it was her idea to do it, which somewhat answers our question about guest stars being involved in the writing of the show. It seems like they were at least a little. There's also an interview that she did with The New Yorker, which we'll also link to, which doesn't exactly say, but it heavily implies that on Fever, she sang live, but the bass and drums were recorded, which was also a question that we had in the Rita Moreno episode. So uh, that clarifies that. Yeah, my kind of woman! In last week's Joel Grey episode, we said that it was the first appearance of Wayne and Wanda. It was not. They are in the Connie Stevens episode, but the Joel Grey episode is their first onstage appearance. Aha. Uh-huh. And last but not least, uh, I want to thank our friends on the Extra Hot Great podcast for giving us a shout out a couple weeks ago. And welcome to any crossover listeners. Speaking of crossovers, the week that this episode drops... I will be a guest on Extra Hot Great for Muppet Thunderdome. We're going to determine which Muppets would win in a series of battles to the death. Uh, They did this with Smurfs on their Patreon a few weeks back, and it was completely deranged, and I can't wait. So that will be on Extra Hot Great on March 24th, if you want to hear me kill some Muppets. Am I laying it on a little too sick? If Muppets are battling each other to the death, and is the last surviving Muppet the one who eats all the other Muppets who have eaten all the preceding Muppets? Is that how it works? It's a great question, and uh, we'll find out. When they did it with Smurfs, there were uh, implements involved, and uh, but you know they're they're Smurfs; they work differently. So yeah, I think um, I think who can eat who is probably going to be a really solid determining factor. Listen yeah. and see. I mean, yeah, we haven't recorded it. We haven't recorded it yet, so uh, we'll we'll find out. Okay, that was a lot. Uh, so I will just say that right now we are talking about the fourth episode of The Muppet Show made, and actually also the fourth episode of The Muppet Show aired in New York, which uh, so far is unusual for them to be the same. This is the Ruth Buzzy episode. It aired on October 11th, 1976 in New York. David, please tell us about Ruth Buzzy. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really 
makes me happy to introduce to you. So it's been really interesting as I've been talking to people about The Muppet Show that Ruth Buzzy seems to be someone who is really a generational marker in that people who are a little bit older than me remember her really fondly, mostly from Laugh-In, where she was regular for the entire run of the show. She won a Golden Globe for it. She had five Emmy nominations for it. She had a signature character named Gladys Ormsby, who a lot of people remember, uh, mostly because she liked to hit celebrities with her purse. People a little bit younger than me remember her as Ruthie from Sesame Street. She was a regular on the show from 1993 when they had that Around the Corner expansion. And she stayed on the show even after they discontinued the Around the Corner, both as Ruthie, her character, and as the voice of the animated Susie Kabluzi and her pet cat, Feth, all the way through 2008. I think the four of us all fall right in the middle of the generations who didn't really firsthand experience either of that. So she's a little bit of a, a mystery to us. Like many of the guests, I think, who were on, especially season one of The Muppet Show, she made a ton of guest star appearances throughout her career on variety shows, on sitcoms. She was a recurring character on That Girl. She was a regular roaster on the Dean Martin roast. She did have a, a one-season TV show where she starred alongside next week's guest star, Jim Neighbors, as time-traveling androids Fee and Fum in The Lost Saucer, which was a Sid and Marty Croft show. But primarily, she's a comedian. You know, she got her start in stand-up. She was teamed with Dom DeLuise for a while. And uh, she's still around. She's on Twitter at Ruth underscore A underscore Buzzy. She currently lives in Texas on a 600-acre cattle and horse ranch with her husband, where they collect cars. And uh, I would just like to say that if you watch this episode and come away thinking like, ugh, Ruth Buzzy, please don't blame her for it. She's much funnier and more entertaining than this episode might uh, imply. We're really just uh, psyching everyone up with our our interest (laughs) today. (laughs) Nobody's turned us off yet. Well, it is. It's just on the, on the buzzy tip. And I mean, this will come up, this will come up next week for me at least. And, and I think with Sandy Duncan and some others, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm slightly older than David. I have never seen an episode of Laugh-In. I mean, I've seen clips, right? Like every every time there's like a, a montage on the Emmys, there's a clip of Laugh-In. But like, I knew who Ruth Buzzy was as a child. Like Ruth Buzzy is, was famous, like the, the, the monoculture in the 70s and 80s existed in a way that it doesn't now, right? And so I, I don't know that I knew who Ruth Buzzy was. I'm not sure until just now when you explained it, I still knew who Ruth Buzzy was, but like, I knew the name Ruth Buzzy, and I, if you showed me a picture of Gladys, I would be like, that's Ruth Buzzy, without knowing why. And the same is definitely true for me of Jim Neighbors. And that's, I just find that interesting. And I don't know, maybe it's not, but like just in how the culture has changed, that you could have somebody who was famous in that way. And something when we were researching the episode, we'll have a couple clips on the show notes of of her doing Gladys. Like she did Gladys everywhere. That was a laughing character who she would do on other talk shows. And I remember like Gilda Radner and Lily Tomlin would like also do their characters in other places, not just on like their actual shows. So it's not crazy to think that she would be a good early guest in the Muppet show. (laughs) She just wasn't. She was in the running to be the first guest. She alongside Julia Prowse and Connie Stevens was one of the people that basically did this as a favor to Bernie Brillstein, who was Jim's manager, who called in favors to get people to be guest stars on this show that did not yet exist, that no one was really sure what it was going to be. So she brings the the variety show expertise from Laugh-In, and also she was doing a favor and putting a lot of trust in these not entirely proven people putting on this new show. I feel like we've given this away, but Christy, <laughs> what did you think overall of this episode? Well, it's funny because you you mentioned the four of us kind of falling in that vacuum between uh, Ruth Buzzy's poles of uh, notoriety, and I actually have seen quite a bit of Laugh-In because I was very much a Nick at Night kid, and there was a year or two there in the early 90s where they played a lot of Laugh-In. So I've seen a lot of Laugh-In, but because I saw it when I was very young, in my mind, the only character that I've ever seen Ruth Buzzy play is that Gladys character. So it was really strange to me to see her put in 
an episode where they didn't have her do anything that was particularly character acting. And I think it's to the episode's detriment. Like it's a very weird, diffuse, sloppy episode. And you know, the, the whole conceit of the show is that it's sort of this shambolic atmosphere, but this feels actually shambolic to me. (laughs) I'm going to echo everything that Christy said. And I have some more specific thoughts about the writing and the writing for Ruth Buzzy in particular, but I'm going to hold on to that until we get to the shout out of a canon segment in a little bit. Short version. I'm mad about this episode. I have a lot of reasons. We'll talk about them. All right. Well, let's keep our audience waiting and talk about some songs first. So yeah, this episode has a a few songs in it. The first song is my favorite thing in this entire episode. It's another straightforward electric mayhem number. They do the song Sunny. Yeah, so the, the, the joke of it is that Animal is uh, constantly insisting that they go faster and until they get overwhelmed, and it's very funny. The song itself is from 1963. It was written by a Nashville musician named Bobby Hebb, who uh, was very entrenched both in the R&B and country worlds in the uh, mid-20th century. Um, He recorded the most well-known version of it, which was a number two hit in August 1966. And it led to him opening for the Beatles during a period where his song was actually charting higher than anything of theirs at that point, which I thought was interesting. And it's a song that he wrote after his older brother was murdered the day after the JFK assassination, uh, which I just found bizarre and interesting. Um, And according to BMI, it's the 25th most played song on the radio of all songs in the 20th century. (laughs) There's this weird list and I'm obsessed with it because none of the songs seem like the songs that you'd be like, Oh yeah, that's the song that was played more than any song in the 20th century. Yeah. Number 25. And it was actually not first recorded by Bobby Hebb. It was uh, the very first recording was done by Miko Hirota, who was the Connie Francis of Japan. (laughs) Not to be confused with the Connie Stevens of Japan. Who I believe is Connie Stevens. (laughs) Yeah. She's big in Japan, right? She would certainly tell you so. Yes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the, the puppetry in, in this particular segment, I, I mean, I, I, I always love the puppetry in all of the um, Electric Mayhem segments, but there's this point where the, the camera pulls out and sort of pans around the band and like Dr. T looks over and sort of like arches an eyebrow and it's just, uh, the it, it just feels real. Like there's, there's a sort of like, you know, a, an a added element of connection there that- I think- uh, I think I made a gif of that moment and we didn't talk about it. Like I just, I was struck by it too. And there's very early on, there's a side view of animal, which I feel is something we don't see a lot. And it really looks like he's playing the drums. Like I understand that he's not, I know he can't be, but it it's so good. I couldn't take my eyes off of that shot because we see the stool that animal's sitting on, which we haven't seen before. And I think very rarely do see. And it's not the kind of, stool a real drummer sits on because a real drummer doesn't have to have Frank Oz's head between his legs. Uh, but it's just, it's really, uh, so first of all, I couldn't stop thinking about Frank Oz's head <laughs> during that, like where his body would be, but also it was just neat to sort of peek behind the curtain of how this band operates. But I also want to point out, it's not just that the puppetry is really great. It's that there's much more fluidity to the camera in this mm-hmm. segment than there is in the previous electric mayhem sequences we've seen. And it's interesting to think about this as, you know, we're still quite a few years before MTV, but we're in sort of the golden era of concert movies. So you can sort of picture them watching some of these really great 
concert documentaries of the early 70s and, and taking notes and thinking about how can we make the Electric Mayhem look like that? And, and I think it, it worked. So this episode also has a Wayne and Wanda number. And every Sunday afternoon She jumped in his boat and they would spoon And then he rowed, rowed, rowed And they sink. Uh <laughs> Is this the longest that Wayne and Wanda get to sing yet? I was thinking that, at least of, of the ones we've seen so far. At least far. in this order, yeah. Yeah, it's longer than they typically sing. I wondered about the her jumping in his boat so that they can spoon. I know that uh, Sam is keeping a close watch on Wayne and Wanda's songs being uh, morally above reproach and uh, <laughs> different from the rest of the character of The Muppet Show. I don't know. I think that Sam, much like many of today's Republicans, doesn't actually think about morality in terms of the content, but rather about does it come from white people? Does it come from white people from the previous generation? And, and is this, it at least 50 years old? Right. Like this checks both of those boxes. From the Ziegfeld Follies of 1912 with music by James V. Monaco, uh, who's most famous for the song, You Made Me Love You, I Didn't Want to Do It. And lyrics by William Jerome, who uh, was a big lyricist in Tin Pan Alley vaudeville minstrel circuits. Uh, the song in the present day is most known as the theme of an Australian soccer team, the Richmond Tigers, but they've rewritten the lyrics to be, oh, we're from Tigerland. Um, sure. Sure. I actually watched a YouTube video of a couple of guys playing and singing on the accordion. It was very charming. But the song also has a previous Muppet history as Ralph and uh, Jimmy Dean did it twice. Twice. And twice. Yeah. And it comes up in a future Muppet Show episode. Did, did any of you know this song before hearing it on this episode? Nope. I had nope. no memory of it. And I would argue that Wayne and Wanda does not work if they if the song goes on too long, because it was terrible. I was like, when is the boat going to sink? Like, <laughs> I we, agree. It's also because like, you know the joke. So it's like, uh, obviously the boat's going to sink. Why is the boat not sinking? Yeah, why yeah. does it take so long? I just It, it shocked me because I, I've really spent the last year getting to know the songs of this era even better, and I still didn't know this song. Like, yeah, I, it's kind of your whole thing. And, and like, I know a lot of the Wayne and Wanda material, and this just, it, it just caught me off guard. But the fact that it has all these other places where this song shows up makes me wonder, why don't I know it? Probably because it's not a great song. Really bad. Maybe you need to go to more Australian soccer games. That's probably it. Yeah. I am going to drop in the show notes. There's You mentioned the other hit song from this writer was You Made Me Love You. And there's a classic Cookie Monster bit done to that number. So uh, it, it's a treat and we'll show it. So the next song is considerably more well-known. It's Can't Take My Eyes Off You is the official title of the song which makes no sense because the line in the song is can't take my eyes off of you and also that's like i don't think anyone thinks that's the title either right it's very strange Uh, and it appears alternately both ways depending on who recorded it and where and when and how it was written by bob crew and bob gaudio for the four seasons and it was a hit for them in 1967. It went to number two. And it's also, curiously, number five on that same weird BMI most radio and TV played songs of the century list. The number five most played song of all time. That's Very surprising. I think it makes sense that songs from this era would dominate that list because that was such a huge era for radio. And then they all had a second wind in the 80s with the advent of oldies stations. So. Right. Right. Yeah, no, no the majority the majority of the songs at the top of that list are all sunshine AM oldies standbys. Like number 1 is You've Lost That Love and Feeling and number 2 is Never My Love by The Association. So, yeah, it's definitely an oldies dominated list. Well, You've Lost That Love and Feeling got a a boost from uh, that episode of Cheers where Rebecca's Paramore played it on a radio station that he owns all night just to keep her in the mood. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that from my childhood. That should have gone over my head. <laughs> That's delightful. Um, this one's also a soccer anthem uh, for, in this particular case for the Welsh national soccer team. Um, it's been covered a million times. It's been in a lot of movies. It was in 10 things I hate about you. That's kind of the most recent biggest reference for my generation. And the setup for this particular number is very strange. It's uh, Ruth Buzzy and Sweetums in a weird medieval setting. <laughs> and 
I can't quite figure out what the story is here. I'm wondering if you all have ideas about this. I I don't, but I do. It's weird. This is not, I, I associate the song with this very weird um, ABC miniseries called wild palms that starred everybody actually, but um, Dana Delaney and BB new earth stick out for me now. Um, like, and I, I bought the soundtrack and it's still in my iTunes, like as being on that album and not, you know, any of the million other things it's on. Um, but then watching this, I was like, oh, this must have been the first time I heard this song was watching the Muppet Show because I remembered it really clearly, like when I saw it. Um, but it also really reminded me of one that I actually just remember without rewatching it, which is when they did um, a little help from my friends with like cannibals, I want to say, or like a singing statue. I mean, we'll get to it eventually. Oh, right? yeah. That was on one of those right, uh, VHS compilation tapes. Yeah. Yeah. But so like they definitely like this is a thing that they would do, right? They would take a, a well, an oldie that was only 10 years old um, or less in the case of this one. And right. And like just do something weird with it that didn't necessarily make sense, though. This makes less sense than that one does. But I think this is kind of like a Muppet Show staple of just like, ah, eh, throw it in a whatever. <laughs> we have a castle set. Stick it in a castle set. At the beginning of this song, it plays a little bit into Ruth Buzzy's. Gladys character, right? Because part of her thing, other than hitting people with her purse, she was always like the the premature spinster who was looking for a date. So her throwing herself at Sweetums. Literally. And, right. Like made sense to sort of like what people might expect from Ruth Buzzy. And then the turnaround where all of a sudden he's actually interested after, which seems totally unmotivated, right? Like after <laughs> half a song of him seeming to be annoyed by her, suddenly being interested in her uh, that's the part where it sort of lost me well she does a little dance here's what i here's what i figured out about the story (laughs) which doesn't quite make sense anyway but uh she's pining after him literally throwing herself at him and then at some point she does this little dance that wins him over and he promptly yells i love you baby um and after a minute or so of them doing a kind of love hate dance fight which is not the the first of its kind for the muppet show she breaks a chair over his head and raises her arms in victory. So the fact that he is now excited about her has totally flipped her, and now she's not into it anymore. Something that I noticed when we were watching this is that during that dance break, Sweetums exits the the frame of the camera, and when he comes back, it's a slightly different Sweetums puppet. So for the first half of this number, Richard Hunt is is operating both arms of Sweetums, and Sweetums doesn't talk, so he doesn't need to operate the mouth at all. And then while Ruth is dancing he goes and swaps into the Sweetums that only has uh, a left arm that moves and his right arm is sort of like tucked into his midsection, sort of like Napoleon so that he can use his other hand to, to move Sweetums mouth while he sings, which is a thing that prior to doing this podcast, they didn't realize uh, was something they'd ever needed to worry about, but we'll see this happen a couple more times. We already recorded the Sandy Duncan episode. And that's the first time I noticed it. And now you can look forward to seeing it again when that happens there. Let's play a clip because, as much as we we have been not enjoying um, Ruth Buzzy, I found this number delightful. Partly because I love the song, uh, but also, and I think because I love Sweden's. Really, it could have been any guest star in this, and I would have enjoyed it. Now that we've heard her uh, belting in a, a place that definitely does suit her voice, I also want to note, and I, I later again we'll talk about how I'm uh, frustrated that the writers didn't seem to know how to write for Ruth Buzzy. It doesn't seem like anybody found the right key for her, given how low she is for the verses of the song. She's a lot less audible. She's really at the bottom of her range. And I just, I want somebody in that room to have stood up for Ruth Buzzy and be like, find a key that works for her, write material that's more fun for her. 
Yeah, the whole thing feels like it was thrown together at the last minute because, like, they're in this vaguely medieval setting and she's wearing like, a, a weird outfit, kind of like the horny virgins in the castle anthrax and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> and none of it coheres in any way. And that's not to say that it has to cohere with the content of the song, but a lot of times these sort of, like, we're going to set a song in a weird place thing, the there's at least something funny about the disconnect and here it just seems to be like, well, we, we had a costume. Well, I think maybe it's because this is Sweetums first appearance on the Muppet show and Sweetums is an ogre and ogres live in castles, right? Like he's, he comes oh, from a medieval yeah. setting in his original appearance on the frog prince. That makes sense. Not that the Muppets have ever been particularly interested in keeping any Muppet in a setting that makes sense for them. Right. <laughs> I think also just comparing it to Joel Gray, like I just was like, "Oh, you did something! <laughs> you didn't just have him stand in a cabaret and sing." But, um, but yeah, I mean, it isn't, it's not good. But I, I, it's 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 my favorite thing in the episode, which is a low bar, I guess. Adam's um, petition for this episode is it's not yeah. good. <laughs> it's not great. I, I didn't. It's a coincidence that I, I we played that um, clip from the Rita Moreno episode up top, but I. I it, because we did, I couldn't help but notice uh, the repeat of "It's my that's my kind of woman" from a monster to a human guest star. Odd. Yeah, just made me miss Rita Moreno, frankly. From the same monster, right? No, it was no. animal. Oh, right. Sorry. But in both that episode and this episode, we have Sweetums picking up a female guest star and carrying her away. Yes, that right. is correct. And um, also, the line in both places is in response to the female guest star like fighting back or attacking in some way. <laughs> yeah. Just before you conk out, that's my kind of woman. Yes. Yep. Feminism, 70s style. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll see you in the Candace Bergen episode. Feminism yeah. equals punching men, which I, I'm okay with that. Yes. When do we get to Linda Carter? Not for a while, right? <laughs> it's going to be a bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of harm. Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about the UK spot. I'll admit I split bananas, take Easter eggs, and make them die. But I never harmed an onion, so why should they make me cry? Once I saw a salad dressing, my face got radish. My oh my. But I never harmed an onion, so why should they make me cry? Gosh, the Muppets really love a novelty song with puns, don't they? Um, Is that a problem? I mean, <laughs> no, no, it just seems like they've managed to collect all of them, which is delightful. Uh, yeah, so this isn't a novelty song from 1955, originally recorded by Steve Allen, written by Lanny Gray, Ginger Gray, and Mo Jaffe. Uh, and it's another song that appears on Ralph's old Brown Ears is back album. And I had a hard time finding any information about this song other than that Steve Allen recorded it. And that it requires more notes on a piano than Ralph is actually using on his little three and a half octave or whatever that instrument is that he's got there. I, I, I know at some point he will switch to a full size piano with a little bust of Beethoven on and everything, but he does not seem to have that this season, and he is producing music that I don't think can be produced on the instrument that he is using. Well, and at some point he was at that same piano, and it wasn't a piano. Like the sound coming out of it was a was a harpsichord or something. And I mean, it's fine; they're puppets. But I did notice. <laughs> <laughs> Still gonna Guys, he's not really playing the piano. What? I, how dare you? <sighs> Speaking of more real musicians. Uh... Oh, nice segue. Smooth. Good blend. Mm. <laughs> Our last song of the episode is a performance by the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band. Man, the Muppets also really loved a jug band. Uh, Why did they? <laughs> this is a, a, a Roger Miller song, future uh, Muppet Show guest Roger Miller from 1965, and it will appear in a later episode. Um, oh, no. <laughs> Not, not performed by by this group though. Uh, 
I get up. I got up and left the couch when this came on. I just, I, I couldn't. I, it's the I'm I'm from Kentucky. It's I, I I sort of am duty bound to defend the honor of Appalachian nonsense and of Muppet Jug Bands. Yes, yes, definitely. And this I I will not fall on my sword for this particular Muppet Jug Band, as Emmett Otter is definitely the gold standard of those. But I did find this pretty cute. It's a group of five whatnots with about three teeth between them. And uh, it's silly, and there's not a lot of substance to it. It is with great pleasure that I present the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band. That does not sound culturally uplifting. (laughs) We can't roll skate in a buffalo herd. Can't roll skate in a buffalo herd. No, you can't roll skate in a buffalo herd. Be happy if you've a mind to I want to jump in just to say that the introduction of this clip when Sam assumes that it's not cultural because it's a jug band. So first of all, that's you know all sorts of classist and terrible. But I also wonder, you know, Jim Henson comes from Mississippi and I wonder how much of that little gag is a little peek into uh, some of his own sort of personal hurt or if that's a peek into Jim feeling like the things that he loves as someone who grew up in the country aren't good enough for the the big city folks of television. So uh, I don't know. It's like it's a throwaway line, but it it hurts a little bit to to think about it. This makes what this makes my observation feel super weird, especially <laughs> having grown up in Manhattan. But like, are are these puppets like a little offensive? <laughs> like, far be it for me to defend Appalachia, but like, I don't, I just, I don't like them. Like, there's like a, I don't know, there's like, there's there's such a weird stereotype to them, as you say, having three teeth between them. And no eyes. I think some of them have glasses on top of their heads, but no actual eyes that you can see. I don't think any of them have eyes. I mean, a lot of Muppets don't have eyes. (laughs) Scooter doesn't have eyes. It's, you know, it seems like a double-edged sword, but I have to say, having grown up in Kentucky and grown up with uh, grandparents who come from deep rural Kentucky, man, they love nothing more than country bumpkin humor. Okay. Like hee-haw was a huge hit because of people. Right, that's true. Like 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 there's a, a certain like we we're in on the jokeness to it that that they appreciate. And remember Jack Burns, who's the head writer of the Muppet Show, was the head writer of Hee Haw as well. Right, right. Yeah, that's fair. They're they're super not for me. And that's okay. <laughs> they don't have to be. <laughs> Although speaking of that intro, totally unrelated to the actual content, they couldn't give Ruth a second take. <laughs> It is with great pleasure that I pre- like. <laughs> yeah, and there's she has a moment where she's staring at the camera before. Is is that where? Uh, she, it doesn't seem like she knows that they're recording for a couple seconds. I don't remember. I just like just it, it's right at the beginning. Just start over. Like it's you. You haven't lost anything. I found it very strange. I'm telling you, shambolic. It's the word of the day. Part of it is that this was one of the first episodes they made, and. In the UK, the union culture around television production was really, really strict. Like they went till six o'clock and then a lights out. And so they might have been under time pressure. And especially if this was an early episode where they weren't quite used to getting everything done on that kind of a schedule, they may have really been under the gun. Right, right. And it's not super important. And most people are not making a podcast and you know, watching it <laughs> multiple times to make an audio clip. Like I get it. It's just, it's going to blow by in syndication. But I don't know. Thought it was weird. She does make this this great face at Sam that uh, you can't hear over audio, but I'm I think that uh, we've yeah, got we'll, a gif of it that's going to be in the show notes. Absolutely. But when Sam says it's not culturally uh, culturally uplifting, uh, Ruth shows him what she thinks of that. Ready, three, two, one, fire! All right, we have arrived at our shot out of a canon segment where we talk about the elements that became canonical on The Muppet Show. I have some things I'd like to get off my chest. (laughs) I can't wait. I'm going to tell you about them in just a moment. First, I will tell you that we have an at the dance segment. 
There's not much that you need to know. There's a doofy running gag. The blue freckle has three legs, and that is mine for um, Muppet body horror that isn't particularly entertaining. But the blue freckle is not what I came here to talk about. I came to reiterate my love for George, the motherfucking janitor. I wish they'd had rock and roll in the 40s. Why? It'd be dead by now. (laughs) (laughs) George saying what we're all thinking. We've got a Muppet news flash. This time it's the Atlantic Ocean that's been kidnapped. I think we've had New York City kidnapped in the past. Yeah, there are a lot of kidnappings. I had not much to say about that. I noticed that the Muppet newscaster has eyes, which I did not remember him having. And so I looked it up and it's because he will eventually get glasses, which is the Muppet newscaster that I prefer. His eyes look creepy to me. I don't know if anyone else noticed that. Oh, yeah. He's got this weird squint at the moment, and possibly because he needs glasses. (laughs) He hasn't found the right (laughs) pair yet. Okay. Let's talk about the talk spot. And I know we've been giving all these caveats for Ruth Buzzy is actually funny. Don't judge her based on this episode. And uh, as with that, I will tell you, I do enjoy The Muppet Show, or I wouldn't be here. However... (laughs) I am really angry about this episode. And yes, it is a little unfair to show up in the year 2021 and talk about how much of our standards now should have been applied in 1976. Like Kermit is hitting on just about every lady guest star in a way that feels really gross now. And it was kind of an expected conventional thing then. However, now a few episodes in after we've had some beautiful lady guest stars, we are featuring a lady who is a very capable actress and singer and is not known for being beautiful. She's known for being funny. And it's like the writers saw her showing up and were totally dumbfounded by like, what do we write for this woman? I don't know. What do women think about? And (laughs) the answer that they came up with was the most damaging possible thing they could think of and also the laziest writing that they could think of. And the answer that they landed on was, oh, fat phobia and diet culture. That's what women are thinking about, right? And I'm so mad about it. And it is it is not only in this talk spot. It kind of shows up throughout the episode in a way that even the backstage plot, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we will. But this is much more present. And it starts right at the top of the show where Fozzie tells his first joke in the intro. I finally found the sure way to lose weight. I bought a scale that lies. Ah, and then they show the audience laughing because the concentrating on weight loss all the time is funny. So we, ha- we have it at the top of the show. It carries into this talk spot where Ruth Buzzy talks about how she literally hates fat. We talk about that. And then there's a panel spot later where she plays this exercise-obsessed character. And thanks, I hate it. Well, I thought we'd just sit here and chew the fat for a while. Oh, Kermit. <laughs> I never chew the fat. Uh, yeah, why? Well, uh-uh. I- no, no. Fat is not good for you. Fat is a no-no. In fact, every time I see fat, I go black. Yeah, well, I, I, you I, are looking at a body, Kermit, that has not one ounce of fat on it. Well, yes. This is lean, lean, El Lino, Kermit, my froggy friend. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can see all that. Yeah, uh, Kermit. Well, I had a friend who once who chewed so much fat that she was as big as a house, and she decided to rent herself out as a duplex. <laughs> What do you love? Oh, well, uh, I love to eat. (laughs) (laughs) I eat health foods, um, organic foods, dairy products. Uh, Dairy products. No, no, no. That's a no-no. Dairy products killed my uncle. Oh, that's awful. Yep. He was hit by a dairy truck. (laughs) His last words were, take the cheese off my chest. Oh, that's awful, Kermit. Uh, Yeah, well, don't blame me. I didn't write that. Oh, oh, it's a joke. Yeah, it was just a joke. That's up to the laugh track. Now, what you should know is when Kermit does that take the cheese off my chest thing, he's doing this cute little squashed down thing. And I am angry at the lazy writing in this episode um, over a few points. But the writers have decided to be so lazy here that when they have Kermit doing this adorable little pantomime being crushed by cheese, they couldn't be bothered to write a goddamn cheese pun. And there are infinite options that they have at their disposal. 
Kermit could have said, this is making me blue, or I'm wedged in a little too tightly here, or I camembert this, or it's cr- so cruel to see a frog and ren it over. I'm just saying. Those are all, those are all very good at jokes. <laughs> Thank you. I left that one open for you. Thanks. It's interesting, you know, and again, like, you know, to be doing the to be doing this podcast, right? Like, cause I, my initial note was talk spot is weird, but it feels improvised is what I wrote on my first watch. Um, and I think that's mostly a testament actually to, to Jim's performance because then when I watched it again, I was like, Oh no, this is, I don't think this is improvised at all. I think this is scripted and it's scripted badly. <laughs> right. Which is why it feel like there's just like weird pauses in it that feel awkward, which is, I think I was what I was picking up on as improvised. Like my first take on it was that it was, it was like a very 70s sort of parody of diet culture more than anything. And then you just sort of casually mentioned in our Slack that you were mad about it. And then as I watched it again and I was like, oh yeah, no, I see why she's mad about it, <laughs> right? Like you didn't even tell me why. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I get it. Let's play the the, the panel. We have a clip of the the panel. This is um, the first time this has happened since the Rita Moreno episode. They do this sort of talk show setup, which has both a very adult joke and a uh, of just a very 70s joke, but also is sort of on the same theme of why are we talking about how fit Ruth Buzzy is? We're supposed to be talking about physical fitness. Oh, physical fitness. Yes, yes. physical fitness. Well, I'm fit. Let's get physical. Oh, I'm a nut on physical fitness. Really? In fact, I've tried every exercise program that there is. Hmm. Right now, I'm into yoga. <laughs> yoga? Yes, yoga. Isn't it that weird sour milk stuff? Oh, no, 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 yoga. Can you imagine anyone making that joke about yoga or yogurt now? I find that part very quaint. <laughs> I was shocked that they knew what yoga was in the 70s. I think of it as a much more recent phenomenon in America. But I think it would like I think to like in this point like Sam is speaking for the general audience of like oh it's weird and even yogurt's a little weird, right? It's this weird thing that weird people do. But it is like it is strange because Ruth is essentially playing a different character here, but she's still this like fitness obsessed person. Yep. I have exactly one redeeming thing to say about the panel, which is watching Sam be weirded out by Ruth Buzzy doing yoga is a lot of fun. It is great. Um, and that, and he gets into it. Just that bizarre, whatever that character is, who decides to hit on piggy. Very strange. And it's, it's Richard Hunt as piggy in this scene, presumably because Frank Oz is doing Sam and they haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. And piggy immediately agreeing to get physical with this strange pig. Yeah, on camera. I, I'm, I'm confused by a lot of things about this panel in this episode. I'm wondering if one of the reasons for the weirdness and the uh, grossness of the episode is that Ruth Buzzy wasn't really a personality in the way a lot of Muppet Show guests are slash were. Like she's very much a character sketch comedian and. A lot of what what they have her doing is like sort of sketch, but very, very loosely. Yeah, I wonder why. Well, and badly. <laughs> There's a sketch where she's a prisoner and she's being interrogated, and it's just bad. And I wonder why they didn't yeah, have her do Gladys, like a Muppet yeah. version of Gladys. It feels like because she was they had this well. great idea for her being interrogated in an army situation. That's it wasn't a good idea. I think they knew. Yeah. I mean, that's like an old hacky joke. Like that's, I don't even think that that's original to this sketch. I think that's like goes back to at least, you know, vaudeville in World War One. Yeah. If they're saying we have ways of making you talk and the joke is then she won't stop talking. I Surely that's not the first time this joke has been made. That's also the sort of thing that, you know, on Laugh-In, that would have been a great 30 second sketch. But on The Muppet Show where they don't really do those quick sketches, or at least... They don't in this episode and and some of the other ones we've seen briefer sketches, you know, they could have just made the joke and been done and it would have been fine. I wonder if they originally intended to do something with Gladys and then for some rights reason couldn't. Oh, maybe. It's just, it's just weird because like none of these characters have her doing a a voice or any unusual physicality. I've been trying to think of like a modern day equivalent, like somebody from SNL, like if they pulled on like, Melissa Villasenor and had her not do impressions. Right. The DVD pop-ups um, actually chose the interrogation sketch to inform me as if apologizing that the show got a new head writer in season two. 
funny is the right time to tell you. Uh, and Oof. and that's they also pointed out that that's really when the relationships between the Muppets really started to form, though we will see some of that happening actually in this episode, and that the guest stars were kept mostly separate from the backstage in season one, uh, not exclusively, but but mostly. Um, and and I was like, what an interesting time for you to decide to put a lot of text on the screen, Disney, <laughs> because, wow, this is boring and you know it. Well, they were doing their best. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of uh, relationships between the characters, we do have a Fozzie Bear sketch that kind of uh, became the, the quintessential relationship between him and Statler and Waldorf. Look, if, if you don't like me, why do you come here? Oh, because you're one of the top comics in the business. Uh, in the world. In the business world. <laughs> <laughs> Look, who's doing the show? You or me? Well, we're getting all the laughs. <laughs> this is my act. And you're the greatest straight man in the business. Mm. You've never been funnier. Never. <laughs> really? Oh, thank you. You're a wonderful audience. Kisses. Kisses. <laughs> what did we just do? His act. Well, we've never been funnier. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, one last canonical sketch before we get to the wrap up. Uh, we've got the talking houses segment and maybe I'm just salty about this entire episode, but I'm not going to actually tell you what joke the talking houses tell. <laughs> I'm going to tell you they have a formula. Uh, they pretty much stick to it. Their formula is one house has a problem. Another house says, Oh, this kind of problem. And the first house says, no, the name of a kind of a house. That's the joke. They do it. They get out. I love these half-assed jokes, and today I just don't have the patience for it. Instead, I'm going to tell a different joke. Hey, Christy, I think my brother, who's a house, is playing too much poker. Oh, is he a gambler? No, he's a house of cards. Ah! Ah! He thought I was going to say a casino, because that's the kind of jokes that the talking houses tell, <laughs> and somebody has to amuse me, and it is not this episode of The Muppet Show. Uh, but, you know, to, your, to our larger point, I, I love the talking houses, and this wasn't a good one. Like, yeah, they will have not... better talking houses jokes. Yes. There will be a few more in the first season. If you like At the Dance and Veterinarian's Hospital, you probably also like talking houses. Yeah. I find that talking houses are a little bit controversial in the Muppet fandom. Some people absolutely cannot stand them. But they're also such quick bits. Like, who cares? Right. It's one It's one joke. Yeah, I usually love them. And t- today I'm very unforgiving, apparently. And, and if you, listener, also love... The Talking Houses, you should know that there is a newly created Twitter at Muppet Houses run by our friends at Tough Pigs that is doing new original Talking Houses style jokes every day. I got to check that out. We should talk about the backstage plot. Oh, yeah. That was a thing that happened. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. It's not great. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) But Scooter, for reasons wildly unclear, brings a mechanical wind-up TV show host into the theater in a crate uh, which is slightly malevolent and um, proceeds to lock Kermit into the crate, though he then immediately gets out of it somehow and hit on Piggy. And it's very strange. Yeah, look, look, look. Let me take you away from all this. A marriage made in heaven, a frog and a pig. We could have bouncing baby figs. So bouncing baby figs is definitely a thing that is going to come up again and again. and is lodged deep in my childhood memory. But I will say, like, a, a positive thing, all that the, the robot is is Kermit with a key in its back. And the puppetry on it is remarkable because it really is a different thing, like the way that it moves. And I, I kind of love it, even though I don't really love the storyline. This is also, the, the DVD says that this is the first piggy karate chop. I would argue that it's not a karate chop, but she does really beat the crap out of him. And she does give her haya. It's true, she does. And I made a gif of it, and, and like, it's Kermit's little face. Like, I don't even know if it's on purpose or if they just got lucky, but, like, he just makes this, like, what is happening? Why me expression? And it's amazing. Like, there's some really nice stuff in this episode that the Muppets are doing, even if it is not our favorite, you know, writing or guest star episode. And I do want to shout that out. This also answers a question that, sort of, that we had in the Connie Stevens episode about what is happening backstage versus on stage and, and where and when. And and I have always sort of thought of the Muppet show as kind of like 30 rock where like we are watching a TV show about the making of, of the Muppet show, the vaudeville show. But this Kermit is a, is a TV host. 
right? They, they specifically say a mechanical TV host. And in the talk spot, he references the laugh track, which sort of suggests that they know that they are making a TV show, which means that everything backstage is also part of that TV show, which is a little bit of a meta thing that somehow after 40 years of watching The Muppet Show has just broken me slightly. Well, especially because you never see cameras, which, you know, um, uh, if it's a 30 Rock style show about a show, then you would expect that at some point we would see television cameras somewhere in this theater, either, you know, pointing at the stage or being moved around backstage. But I mean, I think it's just sloppy writing. Possibly. And the robot Kermit does go on stage at the end and thank their very special guest star, Booth Rezzy. Booth Rezzy. Booth Rezzy. <laughs> oh, we should talk about the mirror gag too. Because you know, for all that the that wind up Kermit moves differently, they have this really lovely moment where they do, uh, again, a very old vaudeville bit. And Michal found this great article detailing the history of this bit that goes back to the late 19th century of uh, performers mirroring each other's moves and then one of them sort of uh, punking the other one. Yeah, I think about it as uh, a bit from the Marx Brothers movie Duck Soup, and I think about it uh, as an I Love Lucy bit where Lucy and Harpo do this mirror gag. Muppets Most Wanted has mostly slipped out of my brain. I'm sending... (laughs) I apologize to... uh, Everyone, I'll have to go back and revisit it. But apparently they do a mirror gag between Kermit and Constantine as well. It's also interesting that they clearly recorded Jim Henson, or maybe he just did both voices. Like they don't talk at the same time. He might've just been doing both voices live, but like somehow they can't handle Frank Oz doing two characters at once, but they were able to have two Kermits in the same place. So they will, they will solve that eventually. But um, for now we have two piggies in the same episode still. Marvelous! That you should care for me. Mm-hmm. Any other uh, awards or final thoughts? I mean, I don't have a most of its time award for any particular bit of this episode. Just kind of oh, everything. This whole fucking episode is of its time. Very <laughs> uh, of its time. Happy 1976, everybody. Well, did you like the show? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, we made it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Jim Neighbors episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please tell your friends, tell your family, and tell strangers on the internet by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Lemon. Oh my God, I just had a complete brain blip. Accordion is the word I was trying to think of.